Welcome back to the Stress-Free JD Podcast. My name is Amanda Bynum. I am an attorney and an educator and an advocate for taking care of yourself. I created this podcast after noticing and researching the problem with well-being in the legal profession. After making a lot of changes in my personal and professional life and sharing my journey on social media, I realized I was making an impact. People started sending me messages and they were talking to me about how sharing my story was helping them. I love podcasts, so I thought this would be a great place to share my story and to share what I'm learning about well-being generally, but especially as it relates to attorneys. I also wanted this to be a place to share other people's stories in hopes that we can help end the stigma surrounding talking about our struggles and help change the culture of the legal profession to help promote more balance and well-being. And I hope it will help other lawyers and law students learn how to thrive rather than just survive in the legal profession. And thanks to Anchor for providing me the platform for my podcast. For this episode, I actually recorded it using Anchor on my laptop and a backup using an app on my iPhone. And as it turned out, the app just did a horrible job and Anchor was fabulous. So I'm so happy it worked so well because I was talking with a guest. It was my first ever interview and I really needed it to go well. So I'm so happy that this first interview was done with one of my friends and mentors, Professor Susan Salmon. She is literally living her dream while running around the world, and she is loving on her dogs while balancing a successful law career. I thought she would be a great first guest on the show. In this episode, Professor Salmon shares her story as a big law commercial litigation attorney turned professor. She found a great fit in the profession. In this episode, she talks about enjoying her life as an attorney, but quickly realizing that The expectations, like all-nighters and 24-7 on-call expectations, were just unsustainable for the long term. So she shares how she learned early on that healthy lifestyle habits are key to success, and now she finds well-being through purpose, supportive colleagues, collaboration, healthy activities, and hobbies. We talk about how the profession is in need of significant changes if we want to change the problem with lawyer well-being. There's also some great discussion about leaving the law and JD Advantage careers. So without further ado, here is a stress-free JD interview with Professor Susan Salmon. So I'm here with Susie Salmon. Thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Susie is a colleague of mine at the University of Arizona Law School, but she has a robust background. So Susie, why don't you tell me kind of like about your career history and your background um, before even I met you? Okay. I actually uh, went to uh, undergrad at UCLA. I was an English major. That will come into play later. Not much you can do with an English major, turns out. So I uh, worked in politics and in the hospitality industry for a while until I went to law school. Went to law school at UC Hastings College of the Law, and it became immediately apparent that this was something that I liked. I liked, I loved my legal writing class. I loved my college advocacy class. Um, I kind of had in the back of my mind that it would be cool to be a professor, but some of my professors there actually told me 
that as an alumna of that law school, my chances of becoming a professor were slim. So I kind of backburnered that, but it was always there. So I ended up working at a big law firm in Los Angeles, well, based in Los Angeles, called O'Melveny and Myers, the oldest uh, law firm in the West. Um, after being at the oldest law school in the West, I figured might as well. And I worked there for about five years doing general commercial litigation. It was an excellent learning experience, although the first year did involve a lot of sitting around reading documents on computers or in, from boxes, because when I graduated from law school in 2000, still, you know, we still got big boxes of documents, sometimes rooms and rooms of them. And I did that for five years, kind of, it was a really, I, I, I guess I can't overstate what a great experience it was. Um, interesting cases for interesting clients, working with a lot of really smart people, going to having a lot of really interesting travel um, opportunities. I worked in, I was based in Los Angeles office, but I worked in their Central City office, in their San Francisco office, in their New York office. I used to joke that I was like touring the domestic offices. Uh, I never got to DC, but then I moved here. Uh, I took a job at, in Tucson. I assume your listeners will know where we are. <laughs> I don't know. I moved to Tucson. I um, before I got here, I took in and passed the bar and was just waiting for my character and fitness. Always get your character and fitness done early if at all possible. I couldn't <laughs> because they would be sending things to my current employer and I didn't want my current employer to know oh, to no, what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to wait till I give a notice. But so I worked at a mid-size firm, the Tucson office of a mid-size firm. Uh, it's a very small office. I think 10, 15 attorneys at the time, Quarles and Brady. Uh, again, doing kind of general commercial litigation. Although towards the end, I ended up doing a lot of products liability work. Um, there were some challenges working at the small Tucson office of a bigger firm, um, just the nature of the client base in Tucson and the nature of the rates that we had to charge made it challenging. I spent a lot of time up in the Phoenix office. I worked a lot with people out of Milwaukee. So it wasn't the same experience. It's a great firm, great place to work. It wasn't the same experience I'd had though. And about two years into my time there, I was talking to one of the partners there and she mentioned that the University of Arizona was looking for people to teach legal writing. And I was like, wow, oh my gosh, that is something I've always wanted to do. Down here for an interview and I was just as an adjunct. And there was a, not an immediate opening, but there was an opening within a couple months. Mm-hmm. I started teaching uh, one class uh, semester part-time and I just absolutely fell in love with it. I loved everything about it. I felt like I was cheating on my real job all the time. And I'm like, well, Amanda, you kind of know what this oh, is. Oh, yeah, I was an adjunct too. <laughs> you discover a passion yeah. for something and you're spending all your time like looking at, you know, learning theory and, you know, narrative and all these, you know, looking online for like different strategies for teaching students these different really complicated concepts. And I just really fell in love with it. And then um, I was in the middle of a particularly aggravating case when I got an email from Suzanne Rebay, who was then the director of legal writing here, telling me that there was going to be an opening for a full-time opening for assistant director. And I thought, well, I will put my name in. I will apply. 
it's too early. I'm sure there are people across the country who are going to apply for this job. There's no way I'm going to get this job. But hey, I'll apply. They'll they'll get to know me. And then the next time an opportunity comes up, I will, you know, have a better chance. Well, I got the job. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, it, I started here in 2010 full time. It's been fantastic. It has only grown more so over time. Uh, I became director when Suzanne retired. And yeah, it's just, it's just been a tremendous, uh, my dream job. Yeah. And it's funny because it sounds like you kind of had a feeling that that was your dream job back in the day, but didn't really realize it yet. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way sometimes. But one thing I heard you talk about that I thought was interesting was when you applied for that legal writing job in the very, or the full-time job, you sound like you had imposter syndrome a little bit (laughs) and it might be from, you know, being told you had a slim chance of becoming a professor. That could be part of it. I mean, I definitely was told, uh, you know, very definitively by a couple of different people at, at, you know, who are who are themselves professors that because of my, you know, credentials, because I went to Hastings, even though I did actually very well, you know, that I would never, ever, ever mm-hmm. get a job, which is not true because one of the people I graduated with is now a tenure track professor at Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So it can happen. Right. Yeah. But I think some of it also was just realizing, you know, uh, I had been on the national listservs and I kind of had a sense of like who all was out there and it was my dream job. (laughs) So I assumed it was everyone's dream job. And I thought, oh, they're just going to be like all these people who've been teaching for years who are going to apply for this. Mm -hmm. So, well, way to put yourself out there. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got what you wanted really quickly. So a couple other things I wanted to follow up on. So, I mean, you describe your sort of like practice career really positively, but I did hear some stuff about like a lot of document review and some challenges and aggravating cases. So when you were actually practicing law, mm-hmm. did you have any challenges at any point with attorney well-being or burnout or anything like that? I would say not in a big way. And not in any long-term way, but had I remained in practice, I have no doubt. I kind of think of it like I never had kids. Mm-hmm. And by the time I hit my mid-30s, I thought, oh, ain't no way. Because it, it, it is too tiring. you know. And that's kind of, I think, how I feel like I was young enough when I first started yeah. practicing that I could recover from those all-nighters more. I could recover from the lack of sleep mm-hmm. in a way that now I don't think I could. So, and also just, I think, I mean, it's really hard to say there were things about, there definitely were times when I was working so much that I basically had no personal life at all other than, you know, I think it's why lawyers end up, you know, hooking up with the people they work with. It's why lawyers end up uh, not having, maybe having satisfying personal lives is because the way that law practice has been designed did not, you know, did not really facilitate that. It's really designed for white cisgender men with stay-at-home wives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to be hard to sustain that over time. Yeah. Do you, and so you're working in your dream job and yeah. you feel like you have a pretty good balance now. Uh, most of the time. <laughs> I will say that in a couple of weeks when my papers come in, right. the, the balance will be disrupted. Right. And caveat, this is the second week of school for us. Yeah. So we're like in the middle of this, <laughs> trying a new thing, taking on another task, yeah. which is what we usually do. Yes. Um, and so, you know, one of the reasons or the main reason why I invited you to be a part of this is we've known each other for five years or so. Yeah. And I know that you are one of the healthier people that I know. And you seem to project, you know, self-care with your habits like you have 
you know, healthy relationships and hobbies. And, and so what, how do you define well-being and what do you do to keep yourself feeling well in the profession? I mean, a lot of my well-being comes from, you know, a feeling of achieving a purpose of, you know, a, a good fit between my skills and what I have to bring to the table and what I'm asked to do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I'm extraordinarily fortunate that when I took over the director job, our dean gave me wide latitude to build my team. And I was able to put together a team of, what do I call it? My squad of uh, <laughs> badass women, you know, who've had amazing, interesting careers and who themselves are, are really lessons in, in work-life balance. So they've been real role models for me. You're talking about your team. And that's interesting because one thing I've noticed is your team seems very happy with you as a manager. And one of the things in the task force report is that the lawyers are reporting there's a big problem with collegiality. Maybe uh, partners putting too much pressure on young associates and young lawyers and things like that. And so when that's automatically where your head went, maybe that's just because you have a healthy work relationship with the people you work with and are maintaining well-being in that realm. Yeah. You know, and, and definitely in contrast with, you know, um, I think that the greatest the times in, in my law practice when I felt the greatest sense of well-being uh, were when I was connecting on a regular basis with my colleagues, when we were, um, you know, solving problems together, when we were kind of in the excitement of a joint endeavor. And sometimes, you know, kind of paradoxically, that was a time when there were other things that would make you think that you didn't have good well-being. Mm-hmm. Like we were on a trial team, we were away from home, you know, we were working around the clock, but there was something about that, you know, all being, you know, together in this in this joint endeavor, all using our skills, all kind of the synergy that did enhance my well-being in those mm-hmm. situations. Yeah. Um, I mean, always, and I tell my law students this all the time, as a law student, and I always tell my students, I am, I can be both a role model and a cautionary tale, depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. There are things that I did and do well. There are things where I do not so well. One thing I did not do well in my first year of law school was maintain that balance. My first semester, I really tried to, I tried to stay active. You know, there was a gym downstairs in the apartment building where I lived. I was trying to go regularly. I was trying to like maintain, you know, you're building social relationships in your first year of law school, you know, I was trying to eat well. My second semester, all that went out the window. By the end of second semester, I hadn't worked out in months. I was living on jack-in-the-box tacos and Oreo shakes. And, you know, unsurprisingly, by the time I started my finals, I had, my face was covered in cold sores and acne, and I I had gained 20 pounds. And those things are all kind of superficial, but they were manifestations of I wasn't taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was able to correct that over the summer and hopefully like bookmark it and learn from it imperfectly. Mm-hmm. But when I did, when I studied for the bar, I kind of remembered that. Good. <laughs> and, you know, I made sure I was going to the gym. I made sure I was walking a lot, which was, I happened, it happened to be like the one summer in five in San Francisco when you can, when you're not being like, frozen out or, or rained out but so you know I kind of tried to learn from that a little bit mm-hmm. and I, I again I've inconsistently applied it in my professional life I kind of go up and down but luckily you know I've been able to kind of be on the upswing for a while so what do you you said you kind of you, you're on the upswing so yes. what do you do now for personal wellness and health 
I mean, the main thing that I do consistently is I run. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just around the block. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm constantly training for something right now. I'm training for the Berlin Marathon. I'm about four and a half weeks out. Saturday, I, ran, I got up at, met my friend at 3.30 in the morning. We ran 22 miles. I run about five days a week, anywhere from, you know, I ran three miles yesterday. You know, I'll run 16 on Saturday. I also go to Orange Theory, which is fantastic because it's interval and then strength, um, which I will not do strength work unless I am forced. I actually heard it's really good for runners to have like a second thing that they do to help the rest of their body besides just your runner's legs. But I will say that um, Orange Theory is cheating because half of it is still running. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's how I trick myself into going. But um, that's fantastic because it's interval training. And so you're getting that endorphin hit really quickly so that's great I'm not great about stretching or you know I'm, I'm a yeah. runner I don't stretch yeah. what it says my backache that I have right now <laughs> yeah. exactly. or you know I'm not like I really one of my resolutions over the summer like I guess most people make new year's resolutions I think people in academia probably make summer resolutions yeah one of my resolutions over the summer was to get in the habit of doing thought work and meditation in the morning I think I've done it three times hmm so that's something that's like on my yeah. list. Keep of, working towards it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I think meditation can be hard for type A people. <laughs> yeah. It's always like, I could be doing something right now. Yeah. Or, or I could be wasting time in some other way. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so aside from the health and wellness part of it, what other hobbies do you have that help keep you like well-rounded and balanced? I'm thinking about your dogs. Maybe. Well, I have three dogs <laughs> yes. um, who are, I mean, the research shows that dogs, uh, pet you know, interacting with animals is is great for people's mental health. Um, actually, they have done studies here at the University of Arizona mm-hmm. on that topic. And it's definitely the case for me. Um, I can feel my blood pressure going down when I watch them like play. Or I can feel it going up when I clean up unexpected pee in the morning. But, that's <laughs> but yeah, no, I spend time with my dogs, take them to training sometimes and things like that. I run with one of my dogs, which not so much right now because of the summer. And I, you know, I have friends, we have doggy play dates and things like that. So that's great. I was in a band for a while. That was great. Kind of, I think a lot of people who go into law or teaching have that performer side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're extroverts. It just means they have that, yeah. that side of them. And that's definitely true of me. And that was a lot of fun. You know, I think there's also research about the kind of breathing that you do when you're singing. Mm-hmm. That's also very good for your well-being. So I've been trying to keep that up by singing in the car in the shower. <laughs> and that's been good. And the occasional karaoke with my legal wedding friends from across the country. What else do I do? I read a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Right. Big true crime junkie. Me um, too. I really appreciate that you sharing all of like personal details about yourself. Do you think from your experience, 10 years in practice, 10 years in academia, do you think that well-being is as big an issue as the task force report makes it out to be in the profession? Yes and no. Okay. Well, I think it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. I think it's, I think there's like the universal design issue. The practice of law as, as we currently live it, it's, it's improved, but it was not designed for us. It was designed for the aforementioned cisgender, heterosexual white male with a wife who stayed home and took care of everything else and who was there already and available to meet his needs of every kind. Mm -hmm. It was not designed for anyone else, (laughs) basically. So that is a problem that's going to threaten lawyer well-being no matter what we do. 
until we dismantle that system. Right. I'm not saying burn it down, but I'm saying it, it is it is a design flaw that we're not going to fix with a coat of paint or having law students meditate. Right. right? It's not going to fix it. It's also a big problem, and it continues to be a big problem that so much of law and law school socializing is built around alcohol. I, you know, I drink. I don't drink as much as I used to. But I remember being a third year in law school and thinking, wow, I think I drink too much. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think like, like this isn't good that like everything I do other than study or, you know, classwork, I'm drinking. Well, and it hasn't changed since you were in law school no, because I hear the students here saying the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that isn't good. And it wasn't good when I was a, you know, a junior attorney that it was the same thing. You know, a number of attorneys that I know have faced substance abuse issues or or continue to struggle with them. That's a big concern. You know, I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and, um, you know, depression in the Mm -hmm. past. I think that's pretty common. I mean, I think it's common in the general population. Yeah. But I think it's particularly common in the legal profession. And I'm not saying that I didn't come to the profession with that. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are aspects of the profession that definitely exacerbate Mm -hmm. those things. Have you heard the term catastrophizing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I think it is. It's like you're trained to tell your clients what's the worst possible thing that could happen. And then your mind is in this mentality of always worrying about the worst possible thing that could happen. That's what happened to me. You know? Yeah, no, I was just thinking about that today because I was thinking I want to know the worst case. I was talking to my law students today about advising their supervising attorney about what what are the pitfalls, mm-hmm. right? That's how we frame this assignment. What are the pitfalls that, that, that she needs to avoid? Yeah. And I approach I kind of still approach life that way. I kind of still approach life as like, okay, what's the worst case scenario? And won't I be relieved when that scenario doesn't right. pass? I mean, I always tell, and this is probably bad now that I think about it. I always recommend the book One Owl by Scott Chirot Mm -hmm. to, you know, pre-law people because I read it before law school and it made law school seem so much scarier and worse than it was going to (laughs) be. But it really I was prepared for all the sketchy things that could happen. And so when only a few of them happened, I was relieved and happy. Yeah. But that's not the best mindset, probably. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I I think I tell students to read 1L, too. Yeah. Also. So so I think you're good. And you did mention that you've had, like, friends and colleagues in the profession that have struggled with mental health, substance abuse problems. Have you ever had to help an an attorney having an issue like that? Like, has anyone ever come to you and said, or have you noticed that an attorney has a problem that you felt obligated to do something about? No, not really. Mm -hmm. Um... I think I've thought people were like maybe headed down the wrong path, Mm -hmm. but that they weren't in a situation where I needed to intervene, but maybe, you know, I would talk about it with other colleagues and we would talk about, Hey, what should we do? Yeah. But, you know, then there were always people that you thought, Oh, this person isn't going to make it. But then usually luckily, the person realized it and got it, you know, got into another job or, mm-hmm. or went another route. Right. I mean, the number of my friends who are not practicing law is pretty astounding. And when you say that, are they, you know, working at Starbucks or are they using their law degree in a different way? Uh, both. Okay. So some of them, no one's working at Starbucks that I'm aware of, but I have a friend who, you know, practiced law for a year and said to heck with it. I'm going back to school and becoming a librarian, not a law librarian. Mm-hmm. 
and she is now uh, an archive librarian. You know, I have friends who've quit and gone back into like elementary school teaching mm-hmm. or high school teaching, and maybe they teach social studies or government or something that uses their um, mm-hmm. knowledge, but that they're not practicing law. I know a lot of people who've gone into you know, just kind of what do they call JD plus or JD yeah. Pref- not, not preferred, not really JD preferred, but like advantage. JD's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we have a mutual friend who did a whiskey business. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the equivalent of Starbucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, well, it's not because he's, he's kind of an entrepreneur, but um, <laughs> so yeah, I have a few of those people. And then there are people who went into like lower key law practice. Like I have a lot of friends who work for courts. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends who work for universities, not in teaching capacities are mm-hmm. not in academic but in uh, other departments so yeah. yeah so also about other people um throughout practice um and even now do you have did you have mentors do you mentor and like can you talk about the benefits of those relationships yeah so I definitely had mentors I was extraordinarily lucky um to have some wonderful mentors starting you know, within my first couple of years, and some of them I'm still in touch with. Mm-hmm. I'm still friends with on Facebook. Um, there's an LA Superior, you know, LA County Superior Court judge that I constantly, who used to be a partner at Albany, was my supervising partner, that I still talk to a lot. And there, were, the mentoring relationships sometimes were just situational. Mm-hmm. Like that would be a supervising partner on a case, and you know, he in this instance, because at the time, one of the there were many wonderful things about Albany, but the non-wonderful thing was there was not a single female litigation partner in the Los Angeles office. So all of my mentors were men. I did not have a single female mentor until recently. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, it, weirdly, what year is this? And, you know, yeah. I mean, this is the year I started practice in 2000. In 2000, at that firm, in that office, there were no female litigation partners. There Now there were senior female senior associates who were mentors in a more low-key way mm-hmm. um you know who were a couple years ahead of me well that now so I'm, I'm gonna backtrack on that there was a woman who was maybe a year or so ahead of me who really was a mentor because she was my you know, supervising associate on the case and I'm you know still in touch with her you know I was lucky to have people who yeah took an interest in me mm-hmm. I'm trying to think um Suzanne Bay, right obviously well, it's funny Most because people. I uh, the next I asked, do you mentor? But then like I look at you as a mentor in this profession. <laughs> I think I've told you that. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's just it's it's helpful to have those people. But you mentioned the gender thing, and then I'm starting to think back on my own life and how many female mentors I had. More now that I'm here at the law school, but maybe one older yeah. woman lawyer that you know really mentored me throughout the years, which is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about it. I mean, I definitely once I moved here, you know, there there definitely uh, there was one partner, female partner that definitely mentored me, mm-hmm. but she wasn't my most significant mentor because the people who were more regularly supervising me and, and giving me advice and coaching me and things like that um, were the, the male attorneys that I worked for. Yeah. So I think that we have hit on most of the topics that I wanted to hit on. Any last thoughts on well-being in the profession? I guess, I think my biggest thought is it's a structural issue. It's a, it's a, it's the system and that that's, it's going to continue to be a persistent problem until we make some, some significant changes to the practice of law. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how that happens. I don't know what that looks like. I just know that it's going to continue to be a problem Yeah. Um, because people are going to develop behaviors to adapt to what is basically an untenable 
situation mm-hmm. for the vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of people cannot, you know, be at someone else's beck and call 24 hours a day, seven days a week like mm-hmm. that. Um, and that's basically what we've created the practice. A lot of train, we've trained clients to expect at mm-hmm. least the clients that are paying the rates of big law firms or the clients, um, you know, or if you think about the caseloads, Pima County and in Arizona in general, I think public trainers are pretty lucky. Yeah, Across I think so the too. Country, I used to teach that in my clinic. Like you guys are yeah. in a very fortunate office. Yeah, when you think about the caseloads for for um, government attorneys across the country, mm-hmm. particularly in in public defense and indigent defense, um, it's untenable. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are there. It is not good for your well being. Leaving everything else aside, to know that you are incapable of doing a good job for your clients mm-hmm. because you do not have the time and you do not have the, the bandwidth. Mm-hmm. So. That's never going to be good. Well, and I think that maybe part of the change is just being aware of this and the people in authority and the people in charge at law firms can start to make small incremental changes, yeah. you know, and bringing awareness to these things like we're trying to do through yeah. our work here with law <laughs> students. You know, I really, really appreciate that you took the time to be a guest on my podcast as I'm figuring this out and for being a mentor. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked the episode, it would be great if you leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It would also be great if you could help me get the word out by sharing the episode with anyone in the legal profession. Finally, if you have ideas for topics on the show or have thoughts on well-being that you would like to share, please reach out. I'd love to have you. I'm StressFreeJD on Instagram. You can reach me at StressFreeJD at gmail.com. And I've got some great episodes coming up. So join me in the future for ideas about how to thrive rather than just survive in the legal profession.